Hey friend, welcome back to the semi-seminary in another week, another installment of our Bible study that we call here the Bible for Grown-Ups. Just a reminder, the Bible for Grown-Ups is the understanding that most of us from the Christian faith were taught the Bible as children, or maybe we came to the faith later in our lives and we were taught the Bible as adults, but unfortunately, we were taught the Bible by adults who were taught the Bible as children. Nobody's fault. The problem is, though, that it leaves us in a lurch. It puts us in a position where we have a childish understanding of God's relationship with us in a very complex and adult world. So let's take a second and I want to thank all of the new listeners to the podcast. And on this Thanksgiving break, given that we can't have a Bible study on Wednesday night tonight, we like to let the volunteers that take place, that that do all of the wonderful work down at our church for the Bible study to take place, for them to be able to have the night off so that they can be with the families ahead of the holiday, the Thanksgiving holiday. So we don't have a fresh new episode. Joe will continue next week, despite what you're hearing in this episode, because this episode is going to be a rewind. It's going to take us back to the very, very, very first episode of the podcast. If you've never heard this episode, I hope you give it a listen. If you've been with us for some time, I hope you give it a re-listen and kind of think about the things that we've talked about for the last couple of, I guess, uh, years now, about this idea of how we can approach Scripture in a way in which it's more accessible to us, it's more human. Tonight, we talk about how we came to the Bible, and what I'm trying to highlight this evening is how we need to get to an understanding that scripture, the thing that we consider our handbook, our guidebook to our daily lives is a patchwork. It is created in cooperation between fallible humans and the divine. That the human experience is not erased in the spirit divine truth the Bible. That means that there are bumps and there are warts. It also means it's authentic because it's just like the life you and I both lead. It's something we can relate to. I hope you'll revisit this rewind with us back to episode one, and I'll see you on the other side. Um... Tonight we're going to do the story of the Bible. Uh, This is a series. uh, All of these, whether we're doing Matthew or whether we're doing uh, 1 Chronicles, whatever it may be, um, all of these are going to fall under the heading of the Bible for grown-ups, which I think is a valuable series. Uh, This is a series that is for adults who were introduced to the Bible as children or for adults who were introduced to the Bible as adults. Who were introduced to the Bible as children. 
Either way, most of us know some stories in the Bible, but very few of us actually know the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is so incredibly important to the stories in the Bible. The problem is that the story of how we got the Bible is different than how we got the stories in the Bible, the story of the first Bible. So many of you probably are a lot like me. Uh, this is actually n- uh, not mine. This is my uh, grandfather. This is what I actually keep on the pulpit. But you probably received, if you have received a first Bible, probably something like this in imitation, uh, authentic and imitation leather. Um, it might have had your name in gold leaf down here in the corner. I'm not sure uh, why we do it that way, but it seems like that's what we do. And also, by the time we received our Bible, uh, it's been chaptered and versed. Uh, there are maps. There are concordances. The reason why I wanted to show you this Bible here is because this much of the book is the Bible. This much of the book is stuff explaining the Bible. So about half of this Bible isn't even the Bible. It's explaining the Bible. So by the time we get the Bible, it's had all of this stuff added to it. And it's been separated out. Some Bibles even have little subheadings that talk about specific events or stories that are in the Bible. But that's a vastly different than how the Bible originally uh, began. And I just real quickly want to show you, this is a copy of uh, mine of the Greek New Testament. This is just the New Testament. And you can perhaps see that it's, there's no English in it. It's just Greek. So this would have been, if you would have had a, a, a copy of all of the letters and the gospel accounts, uh, the epistles in the first century, this is what, at least, this is what it would have looked like in, in, uh, in Greek, because that's what it would have been written in. This is a copy of the Hebrew Bible. And so as you can see, this is written in Hebrew text. And it goes right to left, right, as Semitic languages go. So Genesis isn't here, Genesis is here, because you actually read it the other way. So that's a Hebrew Bible. That's a Greek New Testament. That's a Holy Bible, right? But we're a long way where we start our story tonight from getting from these to this. Okay, so that's what we want to talk about tonight. Um, And the the thing about how we get to know the Bible and what's in the Bible uh, I think is pretty similar. We're all shown as usually as children uh, familiar or easy stories in the Bible that we can understand. But unfortunately for many of us as we got older, uh, there might have been some of us that were shown Bibles, parts of the Bible that they didn't talk about in church or maybe they weren't as easy to explain. And as a result, we begin to question the authenticity of the Bible. And that can lead to disillusionment, confusion, and for some people, walking away. So where does the story of the Bible begin? Ironically, the story of the Bible begins when Jesus was not who he claimed to be. Now don't leave early. You have to stick with me because you'll see how on that first Good Friday, the day that he was crucified, there was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, was a a rich uh, man in Jerusalem. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. They would have been considered famous people. They took Jesus' body down from the cross. They laid it in a fresh-cut 
tomb, and then they arranged for women to prepare spices and perfumes so that they might embalm the body of Jesus. Why? Because they expected Jesus to stay dead. And in that particular moment, there was no Jesus movement, there were no Christians, there was certainly no the Bible. All there was was a handful of heartbroken women and frightened disciples that feared for their own lives. And then something happened. Not that something great was written down. That, that would come much, much later. But something happened. So, where does the Bible begin? In the beginning, right? No, no. No, the story of the Bible does not begin in the beginning. As a matter of fact, the story begins somewhere about halfway through the end of the Bible. About halfway through the last third of the Bible is where the Bible, the Bible actually begins. And it began with a first century doctor by the name of Luke who began to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus on the behalf of another first century believer, a wealthy man by the name of Theophilus. And he wanted Luke, as a historian, to carefully document the events and eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life. So, in your little handout there, here's how Luke begins his account, his gospel according to Luke. He says, many... Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled or things that have happened among us. And just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the first, he's talking about people who are familiar with the events of Jesus' life from the beginning, from the time the whole thing happened, there were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This this title, most excellent, is what gives us the clue that Theophilus uh, would have been a rich guy in Jerusalem at the time. So that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. That's very interesting because Luke, right at the very beginning of his gospel account, says, I'm not the only one that's writing stuff down like this. He says, many are doing this. Now, what's interesting about that is that that is actually very rare in the ancient world. Writing down documents, uh, preparing documents, and then preserving those documents was something that was very rare in the first century and before. Why? Because it was expensive. Writing was a specialized talent. It took time to prepare. You had to have someone that could dedicate their time instead of working in the fields or being a fisherman. It was such a tedious uh, work that it actually took someone as it would a job to do. So it's expensive, it's hard to do, and literacy rates, high or low in the first century, right? Relatively low. So even that, even whenever you get something written down, your audience is very, very small. Our consumption of the written word today as we all flip through our phones 
or we read books or we watch TV cannot possibly prepare our minds for the fact that it was just something that was not even hardly considered amongst the average person in the first century because the literacy rates, people that had the ability to either acquire written documents or even if they got their hands on them to be able to read them, was very, very small. So the fact that Luke notes at the very, very beginning of the writing of this gospel account that there are many people doing this same thing, that makes the writing down of Christ's life rare. Very atypical to other ancient historical events. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, when Luke was writing his account, he was not writing the Bible. He had no idea that the Bible would ever exist. He was only writing an orderly account of what had happened when the Jewish authorities and the Roman Empire had crushed this Jesus movement. And if the story had simply just ended there, there'd be no church, there would be no Christians, there would be no Old Testament or New Testament, there would be no the Bible. Luke documented the story of Jesus because that story didn't end on a Roman cross. Luke tells us that he is a Jesus follower and that Theophilus is a Jesus follower because Jesus came back to life. Those are the events in which he is describing. And that there were followers, many followers who had seen Jesus alive. And those same followers went back into Jerusalem to face down the very authorities that had hung Jesus from a cross. And it's in that moment when they decide to go back into Jerusalem and challenge the Roman and Jewish authorities about the death and resurrection of Christ in which the church was born. But in that moment, even though the church had been created by a spark, there's still no the Bible. And so Luke goes on to document about the next 30 years or so of the story of the lives of Jesus' followers and how the story of Jesus spread throughout the Mediterranean basin. And that account is in the Bible, and we call that book the Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. And that book uh, documents uh, his, Luke's, relationship with Peter and with John and um, also the fact that Luke traveled around the Mediterranean basin with the Apostle Paul and described uh, the rise of the Gentile church. So just so I can ever, I can't assume that anybody, that everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about the Gentile church, I'm talking about those people who lived in Ephesus or in Rome or in Asia Minor, those people, even in Judea, people that lived in the Mediterranean basin that heard and believed in the story of Jesus Christ that were not ethnically or religiously Jewish. Okay? Anybody, whether you be Greek or Roman or Persian, Syrian, right? If you're not a Jew, but you believe in Jesus, you're a Gentile. Okay, just so I, I'm not trying to, just so we all know for sure what we're talking about. And this movement of Jesus followers, largely made up by Gentiles in this area of the world, would end up shaping the whole of Western civilization. Now, like I had said, Luke mentions that he is not the only one documenting these events. Remember, many had undertaken these same 
things. And why had so many decided to do it? Because something extraordinary had happened. One of those accounts is Matthew. And we'll begin scrubbing through uh, Matthew next week. Matthew is also known as Levi. And at the time that he encountered Jesus, he worked for the Roman authorities as a tax collector. Something that's interesting to me, at least, about the Gospel of Matthew is that it's believed to have originally been written in Hebrew. And then later versions of the manuscript of the Gospel account, according to Matthew, were then translated into Greek, which at that time was the universal language of government in the region. Okay? Now, why is that important? Because what we're going to begin to discover next week, and we're going to talk about essentially throughout our, uh, our talk about the gospel according to Matthew, is Matthew writes his gospel account to a specific audience. He writes his gospel account to Jews about Jesus being the one that is foretold in the Hebrew scripture. Right? So basically, Matthew is saying, hey, my fellow Jewish friends, the, the guy that Isaiah and that Jeremiah and that Hosea and Micah, the, the guy that they're talking about, it's this guy, Jesus. And if we go back to Hebrew scripture and we look at all of the conditions that were set forth by those prophets to make sure that this was the real dude, I'm actually going to write in my gospel account how he checks things off the box. Okay, That's the point of the gospel of Matthew is to show the Hebrew reader that Jesus is not just some guy who was raised from the dead, but actually is the deliverer, the Messiah of the Jewish people. Now, what's interesting to me about that is because if it was originally written in Hebrew, and it was written to the Hebrews, why was the gospel account according to Matthew written in Greek? Because the story of the Bible was not a story that was just for the Jewish people. It was a story that was for the whole world. If it was a story that was just for the Jewish people, then there would have been no reason to translate the gospel according to Matthew into any other language. Because if you were a Jew and, and spoke Hebrew and it was just for you, then that was all that you needed. But the fact that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek shows us a transformation of the relationship of the God, Yahweh, and his covenant with the people on the earth, the Jewish people, seeing that transition between that covenant extending to a specific group of people, to all of the people of the world whom hear and believe. Just in that little mechanism. All right, so this is a story not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. Now the next gospel account that's written up in our Bible is uh, the gospel according to Mark. Now Mark is the shortest of all the gospels. Mark uh, is the first gospel that was ever recorded. Uh, there is to believe to be uh, uh, the gospel according to Mark and another document called the QL, and that's German for um, source. And it, there's a believed to be another version of a manuscript, biblical manuscript out there called the QL source. And Matthew, Luke, and John all draw from the gospel of Mark and this other document that we know exists because... Quotations from it exist in the other documents. It's just that we don't have a copy of that document. I don't know how they figure all of that out. I'm not a biblical scholar, but, but they have shown that there is another document that the gospel writers uh, drew upon when they were writing their own document. We just don't have a copy of it anymore. 
So Mark is the shortest. It's the second that's in your Bible, but it's the first ever written. And the, it's written by a guy by the name of John Mark. And does anybody know who John Mark is, is in the Jesus story? Just curious. John Mark, the guy who writes the gospel according to Mark. Mark wasn't actually a follower of Jesus. He was a follower of the way. He was a Jesus follower. But John Mark did not encounter Jesus in real life. Uh, John Mark is, was a disciple of Peter. And as Peter went around and preached his gospel account and, and spread the word of Jesus in open churches, his like right-hand guy was John Mark. And finally, somebody said, John Mark, you're literate. Why don't you write down what Peter talks about in these sermons about Jesus? And so the gospel account, according to Mark, what that is, is a collection of things that were transmitted to listeners by Peter whenever he gave sermons about Jesus in his life. So Mark is the, uh, the oldest of our gospel accounts. And then finally we get to John. The gospel according to John. We have this account, and it was the last of the four Gospels to written, be written, and the Gospel of John was written around 80 to 90 A.D., just before the end of the first century. And at the time of the writing of his Gospel account, John would have been a very old man. We also know that John uh, was aware of the writings of the other three Gospels, and so one would have to kind of ask, you know, John, why bother? Well, John tells us why he bothered. At the end of his account, we find this in John chapter 20, and it's verses 30 and 31. John very clearly tells us, it's on your handout there. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. And what John is trying to say when he says that is, if you've gotten to the end of my book and you've read all of the things that I have written that Jesus said or Jesus did, please know that is not all Jesus did. And said, if I tried to write down everything Jesus said and did, the, we wouldn't, the, there's not enough paper in the world to do that. And so when John's saying this, he's saying, I, I didn't write down everything he said and did, but the reason why I chose these stories is because I believe they demonstrate to you who Jesus really is. The Messiah, the Savior of the world. He says... Um, many other, uh, they, he did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which were not recorded in this book. And whenever he says this book, he doesn't mean the Bible, right? He's talking about his, his document, his account. But these that are written that you may believe. Well, believe what? Believe what? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, at the end of the first century... There are hundreds, and then there are thousands of Jesus followers. But still, at this moment, there's no the Bible. And these early accounts of Jesus, these gospels, these four gospel accounts, right? at first there are a few, then there are dozens, then there are hundreds of copies of these manuscripts. And copies of these manuscripts eventually get to become bundled together, and then shared amongst Jesus' followers. But not just Jewish people. Far, far from it. These manuscripts were written and translated into Greek. And they begin to get circulated around the Gentile or the non-Jewish world. 
Now, given what we know and what we've already talked about regarding these ancient manuscripts and their rarity and their difficulty to produce, this copying and this sharing and this transmitting uh, shows us something about the Bible from the very beginning. That these documents, from the very, very beginning, these documents were considered by their readers to be valuable and sacred, considered them to be reliable, and also considered them to be inspired, considered them to be scripture, but still no Bible. In the year 303, the emperor Diocletian declared, the Roman emperor, declared the religion of Christianity illegal. Now, this is something that's a little bit different than the way that the Romans had done things in the past. And basically, what they had done in the past was if you will throw, we don't even care if, it, if, you, if you mean it. If you will just throw lip service and an occasional grain offering at the Roman gods, then you can practice whatever religion in your home you want. Roman church, or the Roman government just didn't really care. As long as you made an appearance... To be a loyal Roman subject, however you worshipped in private, is your own business. Okay? And that changed in 303 when Diocletian said, no more Christianity. And it's at this moment that Christianity begins to experience its worst persecution in history. Not only was the religion made illegal, but religious houses of worship, in other words, churches, uh, were, were all to be torn down and all Christian literature confiscated and burned. And the subject, the, if the penalty for the crime of possessing Christian literature was death. So countless men and women and children lost their lives trying to hang on to these collections of letters and documents that we have from these writers from the first century. So I said that without the resurrection, there'd be no story. There would be no one to write down the story, and then there would be no story if there was no story of the resurrection. And then without the gospel accounts, there'd be no Bible. Well, how, how, would the, how can that be? And I think the reason... Why uh, we think that is because when we think of the Bible, we think of the Old Testament being a part of it too, right? And so as we think of our Bible as it exists today, and we think, well, if there was no Jesus story, then how can you even say that there'd be no other Old Testament stuff? Well, the reason why we have the Bible is because these Gentile believers... This vast number, compared to Jewish believers, this vast number of believers, uh, compared to the Jewish followers, these believers became enamored with the story of Jesus, and as they become Jesus followers, they began to seek out the ancient texts that they felt like foretold Jesus' coming. Today we call that collection the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. But at this point in the story, these early Jesus followers would have called this collection the Law and the Prophets. That's what they would have called it originally. Okay? Um, and these Gentile believers, were be they, they believed in these texts not because they were interested in Judaism... But because, and, and the fact that they're not interested in Judaism, uh, but they are interested in the Old Testament, that's actually going to create some friction later on in the early church. And there'll come a time when we'll talk about 
uh, that as well. They weren't interested in the scripture as Jewish scripture, but they saw it as Christian scripture. And by the end of the second century, Hebrew scripture was being used in religious worship services for Christians. But there's still no Bible. But we do have collections as parts of, and parts of collections of these two books beginning to be collected together. And although they couldn't really at this time, the, what we might think of as the proto-New Testament and the proto-Old Testament, we probably couldn't characterize them in any modern sense as books the way we know them. We do recognize that the two, Christian and Hebrew scriptures, were being utilized together by these early followers. And how do we know that? Because the writer of about two-thirds of the New Testament, a guy by the name of Paul, he hit a large portion of his letters to these early churches deals with, in the light of Jesus, how do we interpret Hebrew Scripture? That's a, what a big part of his letters in the New Testament, what they actually talk about to these early churches. Given that we believe Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus came to perfect the law and Jesus said that the only commandments are to love God and to love each other, how do we make sense of being Christians while we have this too? And that's what Paul's talking about with his letters. Not only, but that's what he talks about quite a bit. So uh, let me just back up and I want to fill in the story just in case you're a little bit uh, sketchy on who the Apostle Paul is. I don't want to make any assumptions that you know all of this. So I'm going to very briefly just say that Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, he was originally a guy by the name of Saul, and he was from a place called Tarsus, and Saul was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader, and not only was he a Pharisee, but his job, he was actually tasked with chasing down Christians and persecuting them, and in some instances killing them, uh, for what they considered to be apostasy, right? Basically, and what that word means is that there were Jewish people that said There's, there are people out there who have taken Judaism, who have taken what the Hebrew Scripture says, and they have perverted it to make it seem like that guy Jesus is the guy that the prophets are talking about. And we can't have that. That is bad for synagogue business. Paul, Saul, go kill him. And that's what happens. And then in about the year 37, there are some biblical scholars that actually place uh, this date at about 35. I just learned this today, and I didn't know that it had been, uh, that, that there are some out there that make the argument that Paul's conversion to Christianity might come around 35 AD, which means just a couple of years after the resurrection, Paul has been converted. So I think it, I think it shocks a lot of people sometimes whenever they realize that. It was very, very quickly after the resurrection that Saul, the guy persecuting, became Paul the apostle and began promoting. And he writes these letters. He begins to start these churches. He starts churches in Ephesus and in Corinth, in Galatia and Thessalonica. And he, he starts churches in these places. And then they grow up and they begin to have problems, as all churches do. And they write letters to Paul to tell him about the problems that they're having. And Paul writes back letters to them telling them how to solve those problems. And that's the letters that we get in the New Testament. And so that's essentially the story of the New Testament. So let me just back up a little bit briefly here and talk about the history of Hebrew Scripture. 
Now, the writing of Hebrew Scripture started thousands and thousands of years ago, somewhere between 1400 and 1500 B.C., when we as Christian believers believe that God himself wrote the Ten Commandments on stone and ascribed the very first words of God in in the ancient form of Hebrew. God gave those Ten Commandments to a guy named Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And at that point... God began speaking his word to us through his prophets. Years later, the first, very, very first scriptures that they were known as the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, that word in Greek is five, right? Penta. So that is the five, first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, Those books comprise the Pentateuch, right? And if you, if you had all of those five books written on a scroll, that scroll would be about 150 feet long, and it would uh, be called the Torah. So you probably have heard the, the term of Torah. So the Torah is a collection of the first five books of the Hebrew Scripture, or the first five scrolls of the Hebrew Scripture on one scroll. Uh, I thought it was also interesting to learn that the scroll was so long that uh, it would often take an entire herd of sheep to make one Torah scroll. So by approximately 500 B.C., 500 years before Jesus, the 39 books that we know as the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture was completed and uh, compiled and continued to be preserved in Hebrew on scrolls. By the end of the first century, where we were with John, the New Testament basically had been done, and it was being preserved and protected using the Greek language, and instead of writing on animal skin scrolls, they were written on papyrus, which is a thin paper-like material made from the crushed and flattened stalks of a reed-like plant. Thank you, Wikipedia. (laughs) In In the year 367 A.D., the Bishop of Alexandria, didn't that sound just like a, a definite, I didn't write that. In the year 367 AD, the Bishop of Alexandria, a guy by the name of Athanasius, wrote a letter to his church on the celebration of the Easter event. And in that letter, the Athanasius listed the books of the Bible that we know as the Bible today in the New Testament. Then In the year 393, the African Senate of Hippo approved all of the books that we find in our New Testament today as canon. By the year 500 A.D., the Bible had been translated into over 500 languages. By 500 A.D., 500 languages of the Bible. But then, then something very unusual happened. In the very next century... Within the next 100 years of having 500 different language copies of the Bible, by the year 600 A.D., the Bible was allowed in only one language, Latin. Why is that? Well, the Catholic Church in Rome at the time was the only recognized church in the whole of the land. And they issued a decree that the Bible in any other language uh, was uh, considered to be uh, illegal. And as a result, the Catholic Church becomes very, very corrupt. The priests are the only ones who could be educated in the Latin language. So a common person like you or I could never, ever, ever in our lifetimes read God's word. 
And that gives priests ultimate spiritual power. But in the year 1517, God raised up a man by the name of Martin Luther who was so fed up with all of the corruption that was going on in the church, he actually believed that God was calling him to help reform the church. And in fact, it was on All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, that Martin Luther took what, uh, what became known as his 95 Thesis, and he nailed them to the door in the church in Wittenberg, Germany. People describe that event today as the knock that was heard around the world. God used those accusations of heresy to spark what becomes known as the Reformation of the Protestant Church. God also used Martin Luther to take the Bible and to translate it into German. And then he took uh, the invention called the printing press, the invention of a guy by the name of Gutenberg, and he utilized it uh, to now put the Bible in the hands of the masses. And in the year 1526, there was a guy named William Tyndale who befriended Martin Luther, and God used William Tyndale to print the very first English Bible. That's the good news. The bad news is that anybody who was caught with this illegal Bible would be executed immediately. You can only imagine what demand there would have been for people that read English and wanted to read God's Word in a language that they could understand. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, Tyndale was on the run. He was running for his life because people wanted to execute him. And sadly, they eventually caught up to him and incarcerated him for about 500 days before they finally decided in the year 1536 to burn him at the stake. His last words, though, were a prayer to God, which people will remember forever. He prayed, O Lord, open up the eyes of the King of England. And three years later, in 1539, God answered his prayer. Not only did the King of England allow the printing of the Bible in English, but he actually helped fund it, setting the Word of God free. Think about this. Remember all of the people who died. All of those people back in the 300s, all of those people in the Middle Ages that died to keep these stories that meant so much to them, to keep them alive and help them fight with everything in them to keep God's living and active word available to you and to me. And sadly today, so many people neglect God's living word. It's so important for us to engage in God's word. And why is that? Because this is the Word of God. It is living. It is active. Scripture says that in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is Jesus, the Word becoming flesh. To know Jesus, to serve Him, to follow Him, we must feed on His Word, and we must realize that something extraordinary happened in the first third of the first century that caused all of this to happen. Something that wasn't just written down. Something that wasn't just made up or contrived, but was actually witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people. And that's how we got the story of the Bible. Well, I hope that you can see what I see after that discussion, that that this idea of this holy book, this book that is so significantly different, maybe 
maybe than all other books. Well, at least for we Christian believers, we'd certainly think that. How this book didn't come floating down from the sky or riding down some fiery escalator from heaven. Rather, it's created in a cooperation, a cooperation from humans who experienced the breakthrough of God in the world in such a way that their lives could no longer be different, that they could not be silenced, that they had to continue to tell their story of what they had experienced, the peace, the love, the joy that is the experience of God breaking through the world. Then they couldn't stop telling it until that story was remembered. Finally, being memorialized, written down, and then considered amongst readers sacred. This book that we have, friends, let us not diminish the role that we humans have in this living book. This is a book that breathes from the creation until our very day and even into the future of a relationship in which we share the heartbeat. We share the breath of God. And while it may not always be perfect, it's always perfect in its truth. I hope that you can see that. I hope you can maybe uh, see the Bible in a different way. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you'll join us next week as we continue on our third installment of the story of Job, which we're calling It's Not My Fault. Happy Thanksgiving, friends. And until next week, be blessed.